Hello, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Solving Water Asylum Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Holloway, and joining me today is an incredible person who is doing amazing things in the water industry, George McGraw, CEO and founder of Dig Deep. Welcome. Thanks, Amanda. How are you? I'm good. I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm so honored to be able to speak with you and then also just share all the important work you're doing with our listeners. Well, Xylem's like my favorite thing, so I'm really excited to talk to your listeners too. Okay, awesome, awesome. Before we get into the findings of Dig Deep's latest research study titled Draining the Economic Impact of America's Hidden Water Crisis, I just want to get some background about you. Why did you decide to found and start Dig Deep and just more about you and the process? Happily. So I've always been a little bit of a water nerd. I mean, so many of us listening to this, I'm sure are. But I thought if you wanted to work in water and sanitation access, you had to work abroad. I thought the only places that didn't have access to water or you know sanitation working toilets were in places like Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America. And the little known history for folks is that uh, Dig Deep actually started our work in East and West Africa. We worked in South Sudan and in Cameroon doing human rights-based work, bringing people water and sanitation. And it wasn't until 2014 that we first started working on the U.S. with our Navajo Water Project. I met a woman named Darlene Arviso, who's a school bus driver. And in between her morning and afternoon bus routes, she would pick up a truck on her own time and retrace her bus route and deliver water to as many of her students' homes as she could because about a third of homes on the Navajo Nation don't have running water. Like many, discovering this problem, I I couldn't believe it was happening in my own backyard. And we began taking some of the things we had learned and used abroad and deploying them here in the U.S. And that work has really grown ever since. Wow, that's fantastic. So what year did you found Dig Deep? We're almost 10 years old. We're going to complete our 10th year and celebrate our anniversary in February of 2023. Fantastic. Congratulations a little early. (laughs) Hard to believe, honestly. What about your partnership with Xylem? I know I was so fortunate to meet you in person a couple of weeks ago at the Reservoir Center for Water Solutions. And I know that you are an affiliate partner as a Xylem of the Reservoir Center. So I just wanted to understand if the partnership starts with Reservoir or if we were working together prior to that and what kinds of things we're working on with you. Well, I met everyone's favorite Xylem executive, Al Cho, probably, gosh, five or six years ago now at the U.S. Waterlines One Water Summit. We hit it off right away and started exploring how we could partner together. The first of our partnerships came in 2019 when we released our first study, Closing the Water Access Gap in the U.S., which then U.S. Waterlines CEO Radhika Fox and I co-authored. And that was the first study to really look at the water and sanitation crisis in the U.S., to try to understand what's going on here, why it hasn't been fixed, how people are experiencing it in their daily lives and what we could do to close that gap. And we found some crazy things. 2.2 million people in the US without taps or toilets at home. That number at the time was growing in six states and in Puerto Rico. We found that race was the strongest indicator of whether or not you and your family had running water. Indigenous folks, 19 times more likely than white folks not to have running water at home. Black and Latino households, twice as likely. Anyway, a lot more to say there, but we published that study and we had an advisory group of about 20 or 30 organizations and Xylem was at the top of that list, providing us input on what they were seeing in the field, helping us review that study, helping us spread the word when we published it. And since then, we've had a really strong working partnership with Xylem. We advocate on the Hill together, trying to get legislators and policymakers to understand these issues. We're obviously partnered in the Reservoir Center together, which we're so excited about. So it's a, it's a deep relationship going back a few years now. 
Nice. You've also worked with the Water Boys organization, which started a hometown H2O program that we partner with them on. So I think that there's a lot of synergy there as well. Yeah. Chris Long Foundation has been an incredible partner. We were their first domestic partner and helped them launch that hometown program a few years ago. And it's great to have seen it grown so much. Awesome. Well, we're here to talk about a brand new report that just was published this week. So I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners about what the purpose of the report is, and then we can kind of start to go through the high points of top key findings that you want to share with our listeners. I'd love that. So when we were doing that study in 2019, we actually embedded researchers in five hotspots around the country where these problems were especially acute. And so we had people living and working in places like the California Central Valley, the Navajo Nation in the Southwest, U.S.-Mexico border colonias in Texas, in rural counties of the Deep South in Alabama and Mississippi, and over in Appalachia. And there we were really visiting people's homes, talking to public officials, doing listening sessions, all this sort of sociological research that went into that report. And we were hearing at the time all of these really hard to imagine impacts from a lack of water and sanitation access that this was having in people's lives. And at the time, we really couldn't quantify those impacts or understand their economic sort of impact on a household and on the communities at large, which we were hearing a lot about, you know, not only do I not have water and sanitation, but that's really impacting my family's budget. People were talking about that a lot. So as soon as we finished that study and published the results, we got started on this one almost two years ago, actually over two years ago now. And it's the first study that really looks in the U.S. at the economic cost, you know, to households, to communities, to society that this water access gap has. It estimates what it's going to take to close the gap. And then it shows what the potential return on investment is, which I think is honestly the most powerful piece. It makes a really strong economic argument for why we should close this gap for good and how beneficial that would be for our economy. Well, and the number annually, the cost annually is astronomical. Yeah, $8.58 billion every year that we are just bleeding out of the U.S. economy that we leave that water access gap open, that we allow those 2.2 million people to live without water. And, you know, I have to say, I have to always caveat that by saying that is a really conservative estimate. We only included things in the model that we had really good math on, things like public health data, labor and educational data. There's a lot we didn't include, like the impact not having water has on tourism or economic development for a community. Some of these major impacts, there's just not enough research to include. We also really only focused on households, occupied households that we could get to through census data, which took that number from 2.2 million to about 1.57 million. That means the population is a little bit smaller than the actual number of people we know don't have access. So the number is at least 8.5 billion. It's probably much larger. Wow. That's crazy. What are some of the largest economic costs of this hidden crisis? Well, you can imagine if your family doesn't have a tap or a toilet in the house, it impacts absolutely everything in your daily life. And I think that was one of the key takeaways here is like the economic data really shows you that folks without access to running water or basic plumbing, it really impacts everything. So it impacts your physical health, we saw that uh, lack of tap or toilet causes about 215,000 additional cases of waterborne illness every year, 36,400 new cases of diabetes, which I think was really surprising to us. A lot of the folks that don't have access to water have easier access to sugar-sweetened beverages, which are more marketed. They may seem more valuable for the dollar that folks are spending on it. Also, they're easier to get. So 
that's causing diabetes, which causes, you know, hypertension and heart disease, liver failure, all sorts of crazy things. So we have the physical health impacts. There are also mental health impacts. We spoke to a woman named Tori in West Virginia who had been drinking from a mountain spring, was pregnant with her first child and was trying to figure out if her breast milk was safe for her kid after her child was born. And she went to the local library and checked out all the parenting books she could find. And she couldn't find any information on this. And it was causing her so much anxiety. She couldn't sleep. The estimate is that the water access gap is causing 71,000 additional cases of mental health issues in the U.S. every year that have to be you know, treated medically. We see time lost from work or from school. Tens of millions of hours people could be spending generating income for their families going to school and doing their homework and increasing their chances of graduating college and getting a better job, all of that is lost to the time people are spending hauling water home. There are also just the basic economic impacts of buying packaged water. A lot of folks that without taps or toilets, they go to the grocery store, they go to the gas station, they buy bottled water and they use that for everything. We made a really conservative estimate that on average families are spending $1,350 per year on bottled water probably much larger. Then we have GDP impacts. This one's really interesting. If you don't generate a dollar at work or through education, or if you spend a dollar on something like medical care that you could have spent in your local community, that dollar is not going into small businesses like gas stations, restaurants, grocery stores, your church, you know, as your tithe. When that happens, that dollar sort of pulled out of the local economy and a portion of that dollar doesn't get spent by those businesses on other things and by those businesses on other things. And it really ripples out to the national economy. Economists call it knock-on impacts. And that means that the US GDP, you know, our economic growth suffers about a $1 billion hit every year that we leave this gap open. Finally, the fifth element that we looked at is mortality. Hundreds of people die without access to water and sanitation every year. In fact, about 600 people on average, that's, you know, like two passenger planes full of people. And it's really hard to understate the economic impact that a death has on a family and on a community. I mean, it creates such a hole in people's lives and that makes it really difficult to climb out of. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's a very sobering description of what is happening out there for these folks. And as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the very first podcasts I've ever done was with a couple of folks in Xylem that work in our treatment business. And mm -hmm. they shared a stat that they were at some conference and they asked what the most important modern day technology that we have to human life. And it's clean water is what the medical community came back with is having clean water has enabled us to prevent illness and all these things. It just sustains life. So as you were talking, I was just thinking about that quote, how it's not Bitcoin or anything like that, right? It's like yeah. legit, just clean drinking water. I can just imagine, I mean, if this is the numbers you're seeing in the U.S. alone, what it would be like on a global scale. Yeah. And I think the crazy thing is on a global scale, we're seeing rapid and consistent improvement. We've had this global wash sector that has been working together to push forward access to improved water and sanitation in other countries, low-income countries, for 60 years. And we have improved access to water for hundreds of millions of people and sanitation for hundreds of millions, close to billions. And I think that that took a massive investment, a lot of coordination, but we've been really successful. Compare that to the US, where when we looked at the new census data to do this report, we see in the last four or five years a pretty steady decline in the number of people that have access to water and sanitation. Maybe for the first time in US history, we're going backwards. You know, when we were doing that closing the gap study, we were looking at you know, why, like, why does the richest country on earth have this problem? And the answer that we found was that originally some of these communities were bypassed 
for federal investment, starting with the New Deal in the 30s. And most of those were rural communities of color, indigenous reservations, places that without that initial investment have not been able to catch up. But now quickly they're being joined by other places where climate change is knocking systems offline, where a lack of consistent investment is knocking systems offline. Places that we work like Southern rural West Virginia that used to have running water from coal mining operations, but since the economic shifts there and the tax base crumbling, those systems no longer work and people that used to have running water don't have it anymore. And there's no one there to sort of pick up the pieces and put those systems back together. It's really crazy to think that we're making so much progress abroad on ensuring this access for people that really need it. We all need it. It's a basic human right. And that the opposite is happening here at home. That is crazy. And you were talking a little bit about what it's like for certain communities. Could you describe what life looks like for someone in this access gap? Yeah, absolutely. So most of the families that we work with at Dig Deep when we build water systems in these especially rural areas they wake up every morning and I don't, I don't know about you, but like I wake up and my mind is already racing. Like, what am I doing at work today? You know, my stepson has sports. Like, how do I get him there? Like, what's going on? And most of these families wake up every morning wondering, okay, so how am I going to get enough water for my family to make it through the day? Like, what's my plan? And if they can't afford to, they get in their car and they drive to buy bottled water at the store and they use that for everything. But I don't know about you with inflation where it is. I'm driving down the street in Los Angeles where I live and my eyes are flicking up at every gas station sign wondering, you know, how can I continue to afford gas? And I, you know, I have a great job. So bottled water is a coping mechanism for a lot of people. And we saw that in the study, but there are a lot of people who can't afford that. And they might drive or walk to family or friends' houses to take a shower, use the bathroom. They might use a truck stop or a school restroom. A lot of folks grab a bucket and they walk out their front door and they collect water from a stream, a pond, a mine shaft. A lot of times that water can be contaminated with bacteria, with arsenic, in extreme cases with uranium. And you know, when that happens, that really impacts their physical health. And all of this obviously has an impact on mental health and security. Yeah, I can't, I mean, it's something I can't imagine. In fact, I've got a glass of water here on the desk with me and it's like, I feel almost bad, like being like, oh, okay, well, here's my you know, oh, no, you clean water. That's, like a, <laughs> that's one of our biggest achievements as a country. Like 99% of people in the U.S. have access and our access is excellent. Like, yeah, we, we have some additional challenges we're trying to figure out as a country right now, like how to manage forever chemicals like PFAS, how to make sure our water systems that are 100 years old get repaired and upgraded. But it's almost all good news in the U.S. We've built an incredible system using technology and improving technology, you know, from the ingenuity of companies like Xylem. And we enjoy some of the best water in the world. The fact that you can just walk over to your sink like I can today and turn on the tap and something wonderful comes out. I remember writing that first report with Radica and we we're like, how do we talk about this depressing issue, but also celebrate it? Because, you know, it really is incredible that we've been able to do this. And I think that should give people a lot of hope. Closing the gap for this last 1% of people is a completely solvable problem. We we just have to acknowledge that it is a problem, make a plan to solve it and make the investment and do the work it's going to take. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do with this research is really show people what this looks like on the ground and get them motivated because it's absolutely solvable. That is good news. I think it's important to be optimistic about not just water issues here in the U.S., but globally as well. As you're speaking, I was thinking about, you mentioned like infrastructure issues, and I know the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act was recently passed, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of provisions in there for some of these underserved communities that Dig Deep really works closely with. And I just don't know if you have any insight about how you're starting to navigate that piece of legislature in helping those communities access the funding for that. Oh my God, the IIJA is exciting. I mean, $55 billion in water and wastewater spending, which is, you know, historically unprecedented. 
I think there are some challenges that come with that. We have been not investing in our nation's waterways, water infrastructure for so long that that's not going to close the gap and help us even catch up with the investment we've missed. You know, that number is much larger. If you look at the estimates from the AWWA or the ASCE, you know, we have a lot more work to do there. This is only a one-time five-year investment. So we're all kind of keeping our eyes on it, wondering, is this going to do what the feds say it's going to do? And how can we help make sure that it is as effective as possible? I think there are some programs we're really excited by. Some of them haven't been funded by Congress yet. You pass laws like this and you get congressional direction for funding, but you don't necessarily appropriate the funds yet. That's another step. So some of these programs haven't been funded, even though they've been written into law. One of them, for instance, is a decentralized wastewater program at EPA that we're really excited about. It's a pilot program for five years, hundreds of millions of dollars that could go into systems that provide wastewater services for small clusters of homes or for off-grid homes, places that traditionally haven't been eligible for federal funding before, but that need wastewater treatment to stay healthy and stay safe. Hasn't been funded yet, but EPA said they're going to stand it up. We're really excited to see that. We're really excited to see the $3.5 billion that's going to the Indian Health Service inside of HHS. They're going to use that to build bathrooms and water systems and all sorts of facilities on native reservations. They've been keeping a list for, I don't know, decades now of those deficiencies. They call it the sanitation to facilities deficiencies list. (laughs) Really a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, We could work on the marketing around that probably. (laughs) But you know what? Keeping that list, having that data was so effective in showing members of Congress what needed to happen. And they got all of the money they asked for, 3.5 billion. And they have to spend that now in the next five years. That money is there. And we're really excited to see that work. I know I'm rambling on and on, but the last thing I'll say is that as great as the IIJA or, you know, internally, I think a lot of people in DC call it the bill, the bipartisan infrastructure law, as great as it is, it's not enough. It's not enough to clear the backlog of projects that we haven't invested in, but it's definitely not enough to close the water access gap for these 2.2 million. It was never intended to do that. You know, that was never a point of the legislation. And so it's going to result in first time water and sanitation access for some, especially some indigenous folks, which obviously are the most impacted. So that's really exciting, but we can't stop now because that's not enough. It's not going to close the gap. The gap's going to continue to widen. And we need a more targeted federal investment that really focuses with great policies on this problem and grinds that number down to zero. I was just going to ask you what you think it would take then to close this gap. And you're saying just more specific funding from the government, which I know that our federal policy advocate, Eric Saperstein and Mm -hmm. Josh Mahan here at Xylem, they're working very hard as well to bring that to the forefront of what they're working on in Washington. I mean, Josh has been an incredible ally in this fight and advising us on how best to educate lawmakers on the issue. I think when Radica and I wrote that study in 2019, we came up with an action plan on how to get this number down to zero, how to close the gap. And we updated that action plan with the new data from this economic impact study, because it provided us a lot more information on where we could focus, how we could target our solutions. And so we added kind of four steps in this action plan. The first is increased and more flexible federal funding. I think one of the things we learned in the research is that the water gap suffers from what economists call a wrong pockets problem, meaning, well, we haven't even talked about this yet. We should talk about this, but meaning there's a massive return on investment for every dollar we invest in water systems, we get $5 back and we can get into that. But those $5 don't accrue to one investor. They are spread across all of society from the individual household level all the way up to national GDP. So there's not 
a single investor that's going to recoup that whole investment, those whole $5. And when that happens for social issues like this, it's really the federal government that has to step in and lead and say like, well, we know this is going to cause broad economic growth and we want to drive economic growth in the country. So the federal government leads that investment. So that increased investment and flexibility around those investments and leadership by the federal government is something we really advocate for in this report and have some specific ideas on. The second and equally important one is that we need better data. I mean, I mentioned how successful we were at, at motivating Congress to fund sanitation facilities on native reservations because they had better data. You know, we've been using really flawed census data that we know is undercounting this population to drive our research because we took all of the water and sanitation questions out of the census long form in the 1990s. And since then, the data has been getting worse and worse. In 2016, we completely removed the question on whether or not your house has a flush toilet. Even with the removal of the question, the number of people without plumbing is going up. So we know that as the data gets worse, the number of people impacted gets higher. And why? You know, why don't we have better data on this? We're one of the only countries that doesn't. There's better data on this issue in Kenya than there is in the United States. There's no reason that should be the case. We're also advocating to treat this really as a crisis, as an emergency. This isn't just a problem we can solve over time. This is something we need to do now. But fourth and finally, it's not just going to be the federal government. They need to stay motivated. And that's our job as a wash sector. So in partnership with companies like Xylem, with other civil society organizations, with impacted communities, you know, we really need to coordinate like our partner organizations have in other countries to share data, to plan projects together, to support communities, but really to keep this in the forefront of federal agencies and legislators' minds so that it gets solved. And when we talk about all that in detail in the report. That's awesome. And it's so interesting. I could have a thousand questions for you. We'd be on for two hours talking about this. But yeah, it's just interesting why we would remove those questions from the census in general. And so definitely something to think about. My next question is, how can we help as an individual listening to this podcast, how do we get involved? What can we do? I mean, first and foremost, where can we go to get more information about this report? But then how can we help? I'm so glad you asked. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dig Deep has really been a grassroots effort. We're really a community of about 70,000 people who give time and money and then a bunch of companies and nonprofits who partner with us like Xylem to get this work done. It really is, it's a team effort and it's not a small team. It's a big, broad team made up of all sorts of different people. If you want to learn more about the issue, visit digdeep.org. I mean, we have all sorts of information there on our work in the field, building water and sanitation systems in places like the Navajo Nation in Appalachia. Later this month, we'll launch a project in the Texas border colonias and all that information, incredible videos and photography and research is available there. If you want to just access this report and see that data, I mean, there are some incredible photography in the report, really great personal stories that kind of put all of this in context, like give some real world examples. That's available at digdeep.org slash draining. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't say that we are grassroots funded. So if people are really interested in getting involved, I think the first and best thing people can do is share there just aren't enough people in this country who understand what this issue is, who even know it exists. And so if you learn something through this podcast today, I hope you share this podcast with friends and family. I hope you share one of our videos. I hope you share one of our project websites like the Navajo Water Project or the Appalachia Water Project and really just get the word out. If you can give a couple bucks to communities without access to water and sanitation, 100% of donations at Dig Deep go directly to field projects. We don't take a cut of them for administration or for marketing. And like I said, 
this economic impact study, probably the most exciting part of it for me is that for every dollar we invest, we get $5 back by eliminating those diseases, by fixing those mental health issues, by giving people time back to work and to study and to play. And so every dollar you give us has a $5 economic impact. And you know, what better investment is there? That's great. We will make sure that all these links that Georgia shared are in our show notes. So you can certainly go and click directly over to that. Anything else you want to talk about that I might have missed asking you regarding this report or the work you're doing right now? You know what? I think maybe I'll close with a little personal story. I met this woman named Brenda on, I mentioned like, you know, I was on that water truck with Darlene. It was the very first day I was on the Navajo Nation, really learning about this issue, seeing it for the first time and thinking, my God, like, how is this happening? And we stopped by this woman's house. Her name is Brenda. And everyone, she lives in a multi-generational two-bedroom house. Everyone sort of floods out and starts filling anything that will hold water, you know, pickle jars, coffee cups, saucers, like whatever. And the house is sort of, they're piled all around the house. Brenda comes out and she fills a big cook pot, like a stove pot. And I follow her into the kitchen. She starts to boil it on the stove and she's making tamales. And I sit there for a minute and we're kind of chatting and I'm like, oh, it's so nice you're making tamales. Do you have family coming over? She was like, no, I make these tamales and then I put them in this cooler and I put on my little license. I walk down the hill and I sell them in town and that's my income. And she explained to me that her husband wasn't there that day because his foot had been injured at work in the month prior. And without running water at home, he couldn't keep his foot clean. It became infected, had gangrene. He had to be hospitalized in Gallup about 50 miles away. The crazy thing was, as if that wasn't crazy enough, that he had been treated and released from the hospital at least a week before. And no clean water meant no tamales and no tamales meant no gas money. No gas money meant Brenda couldn't pick up her husband. And he was sleeping on the streets of Gallup instead of working. And the family's income was taking a huge hit because he was the primary breadwinner. And, you know, one little thing, not having enough water at home was threatening their entire family with economic ruin. I just thought like, wow, like this ecosystem, this life that my neighbors are living is so fragile without water. Like one thing goes wrong and everything falls apart. A couple of years later, when the Navajo project was in, in full swing, we went back to Brenna's house. She was living with her mother who was on dialysis. She had, you know, like I said, kids and grandkids in the house and put running water in. And her house was a, a trailer. It was already fitted with a bathroom that she had never used. It had a toilet. We hooked it up to a septic system, turned the water on. And I remember walking in the house, you know, the day after this was installed and she just like ran to the door, grabbed me by the hand, pulled me in the bathroom. She's like, look, and she flushed the toilet. And <laughs> I was taking a video with my phone at the time because I was also very excited. And you see her kind of like turn around and look at the camera and she's got this huge smile like this. <gasps> it flushes, like, can you believe? And I thought like, Wow. And every time I flush the toilet, I swear to God, every time I flush the toilet ever since, I think about that moment. I flush the toilet, I'm like, this is great. Thank God I have a toilet. That's the promise of this work. That's the experience of this work. And that's what I want people to really understand through this data and these numbers and the personal stories behind them is that this is, for these families, this is everything. And, you know, we take it for granted, but it's everything. Water's life. Thank you for sharing that. Now I'll probably be also thinking of this woman I've never met every time I flush the toilet. <laughs> I do have a question that I ask all of my guests at the end, and I'm really curious to know your response just because you are so ingrained in the world of water. And that question is, what is the most important thing you've learned in the water business so far? That is such a great question. And I knew you were going to ask me it too, because I listen to the podcast. I <laughs> thought, like, you know, happen in my brain and I'd have a good answer for you. 
I think it was something I learned early on and it continues to sort of drive my work. It's that water and sanitation are a human right. You can't live a life with dignity or with any sort of calm or ease without these things. It's not just a nice thing for people to have. It's not just a technical challenge that we get to solve. It's a human right. And living without water and sanitation is an injustice. And if you frame it that way, the work that Dig Deep does, it's not charity, it's human rights work. The work that Xylem does isn't just, you know, technological innovation and system support. It is really meaningful human rights work. And I think if we can unite behind that as a sector and use that as an organizing principle to drive our collaboration and to drive the way we serve clients and customers and, you know, the federal government, other agencies, that it's really going to change the way we do business in this country for the better. I can't thank you enough for engaging in such an honest conversation with me. Certainly one of the high points in my podcasting career. You're kind. <laughs> for real, for real. I think, you know, what I love about hosting Solving Water is that I learned so much every single time. You know, I've been working with Xylem in some form or fashion for 11 years, and I just every day I learn something new. I get to meet great people like yourself, and I just continue to be so proud to work in this business. You're so lucky. Xylem is an incredible place to work, I'm sure. Yes, it's wonderful. I also want to just give a huge thank you to our listeners as well. Because of you, I get to keep doing this thing that I love to do. And just a reminder to check the show notes for links to more info about Dig Deep, including access to the full economic impact study of America's hidden water crisis. That's called draining. And let me know what you think of the show by emailing me at amanda.holloway at xylem.com or sending me a message on LinkedIn. Thanks again, George. Let's do it again sometime. I would love it. Take care.